welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today, we have Murdo McCauley. Murdo's the Coast Guard Area Commander for the Western Isles, Sky and La Caba. He's a Coast Guard Search Advisor and is involved in Lost and Missing Persons Search. And is a Search and Rescue Practitioner with a huge volume of experience around looking for people and, I guess, hopefully finding them. Murdo, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. My pleasure, Dave. It's uh, lovely to be here. Thank you very much. I mean, it sounds like a little bit of a daft question, but why do we search? What are the environments in which we end up involved in search? No such thing as a daft question. I think the reason we search is because the very nature of the fact that someone is missing from their normal whereabouts places them in danger until we can actually find them otherwise. In fact, the Police Search Governance Board rewrote their approved professional practice to state that uh, missing persons is presumed missing until found and their well-being or otherwise established. So searches, you know, to, to quote a fairly often used hashtag, search is an emergency and depending on what may be pre-existing vulnerabilities, the person may be vulnerable and in danger from the outset or they may, may drift into danger as a passage of time and the environment works against them. And of course then we add in the environmentals where I'm, I'm sure plenty of the audience are practitioners themselves in the field. If we add in hostile environments and poor weather, that cuts down our survivability time even without any accidents, trips, falls or pre-existing medical conditions. So there's always an urgency to find the person and establish that their well-being is in place. It's an interesting crossover for me. Obviously, with a mountain rescue hat on, we yeah. do a fair bit of search. But with a basics hat on, the only times that we're really involved is at the point at which you make that find and that transition from search into medical care. And I guess a lot of us don't necessarily appreciate the volume of work that goes into the search. Absolutely. And I think when I got asked to do this, now I was kind of relieved, really, that you deferred to my my knowledge base of search rather than uh, chucking me into the lion's pit of medical comment, given the audience. So search always begins with the fact that people are largely go missing from a, a certain point. Probably some of the most challenging searches that any search organisation will become involved in is where we don't have that central place last seen to radiate out from. After that, really, once we actually can establish where they were last seen, then it's a case of investigation crossing over the actual physical search. And, and good search should be a combination of really good ongoing information gathering and evaluation of that information, and then actually the physical side of getting people down there. You know, it's really, really, really true. We should always put ourselves into the casualty shoes. Uh, they're normally much closer than we would think they were. And quite often you can tell when people have exhausted their theories and their hypothesis about where this missing person may be because they will go off and will start to see the search expanding. And, and sometimes you need to pull the horses back. You know, largely missing people fall into four broad categories of person. There are those that are lost which is probably where the majority, for the listeners in the mountain rescue world, the majority probably sit initially in that lost category. We then have the 
missing voluntarily. So those are the people that have decided that they want to go missing for whatever reason that may be, whether it's, you know, money worries, family problems, despondency, anything else. We then have, and again, this will be familiar for a lot of the listeners, we have those go missing and then become ill or injured, either through the environmental issues, passenger time or their own actions. And finally, we have those that are missing with third party involvement, whether that be someone who's abducted them or they've been the victims of crime or, or willful abduction. So even within that kind of four broad categories, we have a fairly massive range of, of different outcomes, if you like, and different sort of search strategies that we need to implement. The search always radiates, as I say, from the place last seen. And then it's about establishing how they will travel along the ground, if you like, and how far they might go and where they might go. And then we can introduce, once we kind of know enough intelligence as to what's driving them and which one of those four categories are likely to be in, we can then start building in behaviour profiling, which, and again, lots of the listeners here are going to instantly put to mind Robert Coster's work, Lost Person Behaviour, and the International Search and Rescue Incident Database. Equally, certainly within HM Coast Guard, our default behaviour modelling is IFIND, written by the NCA National Crime Agency. And again, as we've kind of pushed into the world of Coast Guard search advisors and we've developed our lost and missing persons search capability and modernized it over the last four or five years, we work very, very close with police search advisors. So there's two agencies now in the UK with recognized search advisors and we both attend the College of Policing and Writing on Dunsmore. That kind of cross-working and cross-pollination has meant that it makes sense for us both to use the same behaviour profiling sets. And that then helps us to build up a common picture of where the missing person should or could be. Um, the old caveat still exists, so, you know, lies, damn lies and statistics. Um, <laughs> we can always we can always get something thrown. And if we've been in this game long enough, you know, we always caution against reading the book and thinking everything's going to jump out of the page at you. And as many as I can say, yes, we found, and they fitted the behaviour profile, applied to the terrain, and great, yes, it did work. I've still got a good handful of cases in my pocket that I'll always give to people that are new in the search world and say, this is where they didn't fit it, this is where they bucked the train. It's no exact science, uh, David, certainly a little bit of art in it as well. And luck, let's not forget luck. Certainly for me, looking at it from the outside, I had never really appreciated quite how much data is involved in this. Quite specific data as well in terms of the status of the person and the environmental conditions and, as you say, different aspects of what we know about them. In some regards, particularly local people, so your, you know, your local GPs are actually quite well placed early on to give you some of that initial information. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we're always keen to get a hold of, both ourselves and police are really keen to get a hold of, is, you know, any background, any keen places, you know, who was their carer, where have they been? You can't build up enough of a picture on the person. You know, we always get down the point where we are conscious of patient confidentiality. We know that, but equally, on the other hand, we've got the the two right to life, and that kind of opens the checkbook, if you like, to ask the questions. And I think that source of information that that medical professionals have can be a massive unlocking key to us. We do rely on, on that trusted relationship with local professionals that are going to give us that information. 
it's interesting that a lot of these searches are pretty emotive, emotional, and affect the communities that they're involved in quite deeply, and none more so really than the kind of small rural communities that a lot of basic responders are, are integrated into. And it's worth knowing that actually, as medical professionals, there's definitely an element that we can add to your search without necessarily needing to cross the barriers of confidentiality. Absolutely. And I think that's a point well made that, you know, the impact on the community of this scale of search is enormous. And having that input from yourselves, it moulds our search, it gives our search focus. Anything that focuses a search cuts down search times. But equally, the longer term backward follow up on whatever has happened is something that is always worth having a link back into the medical world, you know, that we might have people that may well be re-triggered and come back to previous events because of something that, on the face of it, we don't even think we'd ever do it. But you would have that information that you'll have people that are vulnerable as a result of a search that didn't maybe even affect them. And we've certainly seen that where we've had a big search on day one, if you like, and day two or three, a couple of days later, we'll have someone else go off, if you like, and fall back into a pattern of behaviour that they had. And again, when we dig around in the kind of medical stuff, it's pretty obvious why that's happened. But for the laypersons like ourselves, we wouldn't actually recognise the triggers of that therefore. So having that medical link and and that trusted relationship is really important in small places. I guess the other aspect of the link in between search and us as medical responders is at the point of find it's an interesting logistical challenge to try and work out how we are best placed as medical responders because you don't want to be a way off searching some some far-flung technical bit of ground in the wrong direction and put all your medical resource into there when actually your, your find is closer to home or in a different part of the search area. So some interesting logistics around how you use your assets. Absolutely, and I'm always very conscious, and I've been fortunate enough to work with a few basic responders and other qualified medical professionals joining into our search teams. And even as a Coast Guard, we've got a number of medical practitioners in our teams. We're in a fortunate position, really. But I'm always really conscious, and all our search managers and Coast Guard search advisors are really keen to try and keep that, for want of a better word, that specialism recoverable quickly. I'd never like you, as you say, to be at the far-flung edge of my search area and involved in something that I couldn't get you back from because at the point of find, the casualty is always going to need care. Now, every single search team, I would say, in the UK has a level of casualty care, depending on their own internal governance. You know, that could be quite high. It could be quite basic. But my point of view is, if I'm the casualty... I want the most qualified, most experienced, best person there. So as a search manager, I'm going to always hold on to the most qualified, best experienced person there because at the point of find, that's the person I want to get to the casualty. And we are always thinking of, right, when we actually get here and we switch from search into rescue, what do they need? And largely, they're going to need some medical intervention, even if that's just someone who understands you know, the psychological impact of what's happened to them if they've not got anything physically wrong with them. But it's seldom that they don't have something physically wrong. You know, even hypothermia is a life-threatening condition, and that's so common, we almost just take it as a given that they're going to be hypothermic. 
will often be very, very keen to hold on to our medical specialisms very, very close to our control point. Or if we do have you in a team, we'll be keeping that team quite recoverable so that we can move you quickly by whatever asset we need to to get you to our casualty. I found it's very useful to conceptually understand that because otherwise it feels we're getting stashed in a corner and not used for anything. I've had a few conversations in the past of people saying, listen, it's, it's not that I don't think you're valuable. I just think you're more valuable held in reserve for the point where your specialism becomes priceless. You know? <laughs> Until then, we'll keep you in reserve. But yes, you're right. It is one to highlight at the start of a search, really, where we're not maybe deploying you the way you'd expect to be deployed as part of a search team. Just... Talk us through the nuts and bolts of a basic search. So you've identified that somebody's missing, you've gathered okay. some basic information, and you've got a small number of, of search teams that you can deploy. How do you go okay, about so, allocating them? So I'll run through in a kind of a process flow, if you like. So if we hit the point where we've been sort of alerted, we've got on scene, we've gathered information, we've maybe had a brief from either police officer or from concerned relative, first informant, whoever it may be, we then will usually do a ground appreciation because at that early in the search, we probably wouldn't have a great deal of modeling data on what the person would do. Most of the time, they are early on, they're just missing. So you might have some indicators that there might be in a vulnerability, whether it's something like Alzheimer's or whatever, in, in which case, obviously, your search becomes a lot more urgent. Once we arrive on scene, We'll form up our command cell on scene. So we'd normally have a search advisor or a Coast Guard officer in charge or team leader would take charge of that initial response. We'd formulate our search teams. And depending on how many we get, our kind of minimum useful team would be three to four. And we'll always, always cover that first three to 500 metres around that last known position because that's your hotspot. That's over the years, I'm back to my damn statistics, but normally they're within that three to 500 metres. It's not so many are outside it usually. So we look at that. Within that three to 500 metres, you've obviously got dead ground. The reality is very few casualties bash their way through impenetrable stuff. They will normally be following routes, paths, you know, river channels, something that takes them out and away from that place last seen. So we start moving down these travel corridors, if you like, and, and start searching these in, in what's called a, a hasty search, or um, police would recognise it as initial visual checks. That's done pretty rapidly in that first period of time. So we're simply looking at the travel routes. Wherever we might come to junction points, these become known as decision points, and we'll do a little bit more search there. Because, again, it's it's fairly well known that, that confused casualties or despondent casualties will quite often pause and stop at a decision point, sit there or stop there for a moment, ponder what they're doing, and then continue their planned travel. And then we've got to set a kind of a, a room. So if we say three to five hundreds are normal initial response, we have to look at what's happening once we get more assets and resources on scene. So we need to set up our external room, which will limit our kind of radius of action, if you like. So we'll carry on like that. And obviously, as people start coming into our search area or search assets come into the search area, we'll start dividing up the tasks and getting that initial 
hasty search boxed off. At some point, and this is very dependent on ground, incoming intelligence, you know, reevaluating, do we have the right profile? Are we doing the right things? Is there a hypothesis of why they're still missing and where they might have gone? Is that still sound? Have we cleared off all the possible reflectors? So reflectors are things that would catch a casualty's interest. I always use the you know, the horse in the field that attracts a child or dementia, you know, revisiting previous addresses, any of these kind of things, graveyards where family members might be buried, you know, schools, anything like that. As we continue through our, our joint process of search and investigation, we eventually come to a point where we've done the corridors, we've done everything, and we then, and this is the kind of lower tech side of it, if you like, we then simply need to split up the search area into sectors, prioritize sectors according to the likelihood of the casualty being in them, and then clear away those sectors. We are always aiming to return, and our teams are always aiming to return the highest probability of detection possible. Or for, for anyone who may be police-wise, we normally give it back to police as assurance levels, with us wanting, obviously, as high an assurance as possible. And after that, we just continue to recover any areas that might have had risks and limits until we are content that we've covered the ground to as high assurance level as we can. And we can always influence that by overlaying things like, you know, helicopters or dog teams, or if we have specialist areas, we might have dive teams involved. In the maritime world, of course, we could have lifeboats doing shoreline searches. It just really depends what we've got in terms of the ground. And it's a bit of an ongoing process of search, evaluation, reevaluate, and make sure that we are not running away down the wrong route because that happens. <laughs> it happens. And particularly if you're not getting much information back, it's very easy to see a search expanding and expanding and expanding because we've just got nothing else to do sometimes. Arriving on scene sometimes late, as a search advisor will do, you can see it starting to balloon and you're thinking, oh, hold on a second, we need to come back and just make sure our information's sound. If we need to expand it, great, but a lot of the time we don't. We've probably exhausted what we can do with the information we've got. It's a length process, really, of, of getting your actual ground appreciation, covering your, your model off, and then moving from what would be the reflex or bike wheel model where we're doing the kind of travel corridors and moving into a, a sectorized model of just basically looking at the map and boxing off your areas and covering them as best you can. That's really interesting. And I think one of the things that I find fascinating is going into day two of a search or something you know, earlier if, if we're sort of midwinter and mm. actually starting to think through the logistics of actually by now, anybody who's been out for the length of time will be profoundly hypothermic. They're going to be metabolically yeah. deranged. They're going to be behind on fluid and fluid. Yeah. And actually starting to think through the medical implications of search beyond the initial 12, 24-hour period. That's really, by the time we reach day two, you're absolutely right. Because the first period of search tends to be quite high tempo. It tends to be all go, 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 go. Whereas by day two, you need to start thinking, right, when we find this casualty, and we'll always go with when, you know, when we find them, we'll stay positive. When we find them, we are now at the point where we do have someone who needs urgent medical intervention. So we're back to that state where any search advisor worth their salt is going to be looking at, at the medical resource they have around them and saying, right, 
I'm going to have you waiting and what are you needing and what are you needing from us? And that's a conversation that certainly I would always have as early as possible with anyone, any medical specialist saying, right, when we reach the point where we've got them, what do you want from us? What are we going to do and how are we going to handle this person? And that's really important from my point of view that we do the right thing once we find them. I think that's a mindset difference between the first day or the first few hours of the search and the day two one, because it becomes much more focused on, right, we are probably in a slower search phase, but we're in a more urgent medical phase by that point, usually with the passage of time. I guess the other aspect for me is is trying to have sensible discussions about actually we're moving from potentially a rescue into a far more likely a recovery and trying to think through in advance, potentially briefing search teams in advance that actually we're now at a point where any person recovered is going to be dead and trying to kind of pre-brief and build up some resilience around that conversation. Yeah, and that's a difficult thing sometimes depending on what you've got to deal with. We all recognise that and, you know, we recognise that we've probably sometimes lost that survival window. You know, we all know at the point normally, although we always hope for the best, there comes a point where we all know we are reaching the recovery phase, not the rescue phase. And it's kind of easy in some ways when we're dealing with single service response. So if I was dealing purely with Coast Guard search teams, these are teams I've trained with. I know I know their experience levels. I'm good with that. But that's not always the case. And equally, you know, mountain rescue teams and Lowland SAR and all the rest of it, they'll all recognize that when they're dealing in their own teams, all these issues of resilience and the right person at the right point is absolutely key as well. But then you get out into the unknown world of dealing with teams that you might not actually have much contact with in day to day. And you get into the unknown world of bystanders, because again, small communities, we always have an element of spontaneous volunteers who will join the search. And it's a really difficult, difficult point to deal with that. You need to be prepared, everyone. Yes, it's great you've turned out and thank you very much for being here. We're now in day two, we're now in day three. You all need to be prepared for the outcome that we are probably not going to be finding a live person unless all the stars have aligned in their favour, which is seldom, if we're honest, as you know. And these are difficult conversations and made even more difficult sometimes by the wonders of modern technology. I recall a particular search where I was actually having this conversation with a group of people and in the background, one of my team, and thank goodness for them, I owe them forever more, just before I said anything too sensitive, actually caught someone with a mobile phone recording what I was saying. You know, nightmare thing. Murder Macaulay said, we're now looking for someone who's who's dead. I would never use those words, but that's the way it would be spun. So we've got to be sensitive about the environment we find ourselves in as well and make sure we have these conversations, but make sure we don't have the, the wrong people in the room at the wrong time as well. Absolutely. It's interesting as a crossover because in a lot of rural communities, the sort of the basic responders, whether they're doctors, nurses or paramedics, are in that position where they are potentially providing the SME expert medical advice. But for a lot of folk, they wouldn't have had any involvement with search previously. And I think it's a, it's a huge and complex area that it's difficult to get to grips with. Definitely. I wonder if you've got any sort of top tips on pitfalls for going into search and, and things that you've either found haven't worked or dramas that you can share with us? <laughs> I think my top three tips, really, 
number one that, that probably goes wrong more often than not is, and I've said it already, but it doesn't hurt to rephrase it, is people are more often nearer their last place of seen than they are further away. People are normally nearer where they were last seen. That's for sure. But put yourself in the casualty shoes. And quite often, again, arriving on scene, I'll ask the question, if you were standing here and you were the casualty, what would you do? When you have a blank face and people say, I don't know, I haven't really thought about that. Well, let's think about that. Because if I was sat there, and a very quick example without going into much detail, but you know, we had a missing person a few weeks back. They had gone from their car. When we arrived on scene, I sort of sat not quite in their car, but beside it, and looked and said, well, that's the only direction they could have gone. That's the way they parked. And sure enough, that was the direction they've gone. So it's always worth having that. Let's be in the casualty shoes for a second. Let's think what they would have done. Because if we haven't thought that way, our search will grow arms and legs, particularly if we're getting no incoming intelligence. Number two, really, it's more a statement, but it's it's something that the, the listeners will definitely recognise. Missing people are, are time-critical incidents. Their survivability is decreasing. The environment is always going to work against them as time passes. So this is an emergency. And in order to effectively manage that emergency, then really we need to mesh good command and control, good information gathering, and then finally effective low-level or detailed tactics. And I think that's probably transferable to almost any emergency management situation. If you've got the right information, if you've got the right people actually processing that information and directing the team, and at the final end, you've got the team with the right skill set, I think that's applicable across all emergency response and probably into the world that your listeners are more familiar with in the medical world. And number three, and I've said a couple of times when it goes wrong, it's normally because those responsible for getting that command and control haven't quite pinned down their search parameters so work to pin down your search parameters get them in place early don't be stuck with them dig away find the information to support those parameters and if you think you're going wrong put a stop regather your thoughts reevaluate. otherwise your search grows arms and legs and we're searching five kilometers instead of a kilometer and again i'm sitting here thinking of numerous times I've seen that drifting away in the past or getting into that situation and just taking someone to say, listen, stop, let's come back to where we need to go, you know, do our basic stuff well. And that's my three tips, Steve. Fantastic. I mean, finishing on the line, doing the basic stuff well is is, yeah. is definitely what we're all about. Absolutely. That's really useful and I think really helpful to kind of expose some of the medical professionals who respond for basics to a side of care that we don't have any real exposure to. So it's really useful to get your expertise. Brilliant. No, my pleasure. I've been really good. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.